Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. The US Open starts here. And I say that because you find myself, Catherine Mitiger, and Matt Roberts, as planned, at Heathrow Airport. We've made it this far, Matt. I won't say what could go wrong again, but so far, barring a, a little bit of intermittent Wi-Fi, uh, it's all gone really quite smoothly. Oh, and... Also, of course, apart from the fact that we were up at at one thirty a.m. watching Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz do ridiculous things, depriving us of sleep, but apart from that, all very smooth. <laughs> mm, maybe too well it's gone so far that we're we're now worried about Wi-Fi and connection. But so far, we're okay. We've got David on the screen, uh, and yeah, we are pretty tired because of Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz deciding to play the the longest Cincinnati final of, of all time when, when sleep was, was precious last night. But it was great, so I don't want to start this podcast by complaining. We have had about the amount of sleep that David gets every night. This is, yeah. this is what it feels David like to be, totally to be you, David. <laughs> I feel great. Uh, I was in the seat uh, just, just six short hours ago, and uh, um, I mean... I, I was I kept trying to think oh I, I really should go to the living room and try and you know get it on the big screen you know and but but I'm but I'm sort of simultaneously working and watching and I, I can't move I might miss, miss one point and I just decided to, to stay where, where I was for about four straight hours and then I realized I, I couldn't really get up properly uh, at my advancing years and um uh, but but it was all worth it what a night of tennis what a day of tennis the whole thing yeah, Novak Djokovic, the champion in Cincinnati after the most exhilarating <laughs> tennis match. Um, certainly the most exhilarating best of three set men's tennis match that I can remember watching with a completely unique and bizarre narrative and trajectory because yep pre-match we were all expecting something exhilarating and scintillating um but after well it 
it quickly became apparent that it wasn't, or we thought it wasn't going to be the match that we were all expecting, right? After an hour, it was talk of damp squib was was rife. There was, you just would not have credited. Crap, if you like. <laughs> Who said crap? <laughs> We've said that before about this match. <laughs> um, you just... You just, if you'd been shown a crystal ball and looked into the future and what that match ended up becoming, you wouldn't have believed it. The only person in the world that thought that the scenario that ended up transpiring was possible was Novak Djokovic. Hmm. Even when he even when he was sat there at a set and a breakdown, having his oxy, oxygen saturation measured on the court with a huge ice towel... Um, hung around his neck looking dazed and confused and not just red in the face, kind of purple in the face. I I never find Novak Djokovic more relatable than when he's struggling in heat and humidity because that is, that's how I feel in those sorts of conditions. I get that kind of panicky, claustrophobic um, sensation where I'm struggling, struggling to get air in and struggling to see straight. But even... In those moments, I felt like, and I know it's easy to say this in retrospect, but I feel like Djokovic could see this this route to the finish line that we all thought was impossible. Interesting, interesting thought that uh, because, and and I think it's one of his one of his many great achievements over the years is learning how to find a way to come through those moments because it, it's not like he stopped struggling in the heat he was as as uncomfortable yesterday as he was when he was retiring from a lot of matches in his early career because of heat related incidents and he's just figured out ways to sort of ride it out I mean sometimes I think he he, he maybe extends the break off the court that he takes or he just calms his breathing down or he, or whatever whatever happens and and he's and he's kind of he is demonstrative some people don't like that some people don't like the fact that he shows he's hurting and he's uncomfortable I think it's it's I think it's his way of dealing with it is it's like talking therapy for somebody who's struggling with their mental health his way of coming through those moments of crisis is to let everybody know how awful this is and and it is awful it's horrible like you like you say Catherine um and I do think that Alcraz took his eye off the ball a little bit as he because he assumed he was going to win he assumed it was a damp squib as well because I'm feeling great I'm 20 years old I could do this for three hours and and he was um, he was feeling fine and he was totally dominating the match and just incrementally that's where the 36 years of age and the experience of Djokovic actually ends up helping him there are downsides but that ends up helping him the thing is, what happens when you have a, a, a medical timeout and a, a physical situation that extreme is that all the intensity gets sucked out of the match. It almost gets, it gets awkward and flat and the whole atmosphere on the court changes and Alcaraz is thinking, well, everything's been going my way. I'm a set and a break up. I don't want anything to change. And suddenly everything feels different. So... That changes everything for Carlos Alcaraz, and yes, I don't think he dealt with that brilliantly. But I do, I do understand it. I do understand how he wasn't able to just keep going the way he was before because he was playing on a different playing field at that point. Yeah, and 
there was maybe even a moment in the Wimbledon final which was similar. You know, it felt like Djokovic was really struggling at the start of that fourth set in that Wimbledon final and maybe Alcaraz could try and close it out there and then. And he sort of let, let Djokovic a little bit back into that match. And I think he led him back into this one. And it was just, it was just fascinating to see Djokovic sort of feeling like that and going with the ebbs and flows of the match in a best of three. You know, I, I associate that so much with Djokovic over best of five but having to do it over best of three in those conditions was was maybe a little bit new and he said afterwards Djokovic that it felt like a Grand Slam final that it was one of the toughest matches he's ever played in his life and I think almost the biggest almost the biggest sort of compliment you can give Carlos Alcaraz is that the celebration that Djokovic did after the match was the exact same one they did after that incredible Australian Open final with Rafael Nadal in, in 2012 where they needed seats during, during the ceremony because they'd been playing for six hours in that he fell on his back and then he ripped his shirt open and, and that 2012 Australian Open for me is like the defining Djokovic win really in terms of how tough you have to be to try and beat him and off the back of his breakthrough in 2011 it was like okay well can he back it up can he do it again and he did and you had this incredible moment where I was like, okay, Djokovic is the guy now. And he's still the guy <laughs> 10, 11 years later. Um, and, he, and he knows that he has to go to those same extremes that he had to all those years ago to get past Rafael Nadal. He now has to do that to try and get past Carlos Alcaraz as well. And I've, I've not seen him that motivated in a Masters event for so long. It, it felt like, okay, the US Open is, is a big deal, but that's coming. Right now my focus is this, and I'm this rivalry, and trying to get past Alcaraz, and I'm just all in on this, on this sort of intergenerational rivalry that we've got, and there's this, there's this premium on all their matches now, because it's such a short window that we get to enjoy them, and I think they both know that, and everything's heightened, and yeah, I'm, I'm rambling, but I'm just, I'm just so into these two playing each other. Yeah, and Djokovic is so grateful for it, yeah. isn't it? Because to, to do what he's doing at, at this age, motivation is absolutely everything. And I get the impression, especially now the calendar slam is off, almost Alcaraz is the motivation, mm. just keeping him at bay for as long as possible. When, David, was the last time you saw Djokovic willing to go to those kind of dark places in a non-Grand Slam event. Oh, I'm yeah. trying to remember. It's been a long time. Yeah, I, I mean, he's rarely been pushed like that when he's playing well, um, apart from, I guess, by Nadal most of the time. It would be um, in those situations. Go back a decade, there were matches, I suppose, like that, and they mattered more because he hadn't... I mean, this was his 39th Blumen Masters 1000 win. That is one of the stats that I really kind of hadn't processed until they announced it at the end of the match. What is that? Um, but but I, th I think that's true because I do feel like at this level, sometimes he's maybe gone behind and he's put a lot in, he's gone behind, and then just that subconscious edge goes off the match because it's not a Grand Slam he would dig in and find mm. something extra at a Grand Slam that he wouldn't. And I find that understandable. But this guy has brought it out of him. And, uh, and I, I do find that very interesting mentally. I, 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 I enjoyed his 
slightly delirious interview at the end of the match, Djokovic, where he was so honest about what it meant to him. He's not trying to hide that. He, he didn't hide it after he lost to Alcaraz either at Wimbledon about how good he is. You know, he's not trying to paper over it. He knows that this guy is the best of of them all. He's got bits of them all, and you, and and it's like, and and can I find a way to beat that? Oh, I want to beat. I think, it. He, I want I think to. he's proud. Yeah. I think he's proud that he's he's hanging with him and getting victories over him, even if he's not beating him every time. He's like, this kid is twenty years old and ridiculous. He's like, you can all see this, right? You can see how good he is. I'm thirty six. <laughs> I've seen off Nadal, I've seen off Federer, I've seen off one of Andy Murray's hips and I'm still I'm still I'm still fending them off just just about. Yeah. And 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 we did wonder on our final Wimbledon show we had that conversation what will this do to Novak Djokovic. And I, I think we all leaned on the side of it will probably motivate him even more, but I think there was a there was a chance that it went the other way, you know. Mm, and I was worried about his motivation. Right, but... The, the, this, for the remainder of this, this season. season mm. Yeah, with the calendar slam having gone. Mm. Yeah, but I think you're absolutely right. Alcaraz is now his motivation. And it just it just felt like the fact that, you know, he came out starting this tournament in Cincinnati. He'd, like, he'd grown his beard out. There was a sort of slightly menacing feel to him as though he'd sort of been sort of stewing on that Wimbledon final loss. I know he said like it was, he said it was over in a day, I move on, but it felt like he was kind of out for revenge all tournament. And it is the most Djokovic move to bounce back immediately. I, I do think a couple of the results I always think of in Djokovic's career are the fact that he won, the, he won Wimbledon straight after he'd lost that Roland Garros final to Stan Wawrinka where he was, you know, devastated. He won his next tournament. And he won his next tournament after he'd lost to Medvedev in the US Open and hadn't completed the career, um, the calendar Grand Slam. His, his ability to bounce back from disappointment is something that has defined his, his whole career and he's still doing it. And oh, it, was, it was just, it was everything. I do, I, I wonder about the scenario and... Look, I desperately hope, and obviously it's, it's, it looks very much on the cards, that we will get Djokovic against Alcaraz in the final of the US Open because they're so much better than absolutely everybody else. That is beyond question last night. But there's a reason you play the matches. Anything can happen in sport. Imagine the scenario where Alcaraz goes out and Djokovic is still in. I can imagine that being like a balloon popped for Djokovic he's faced him at his last three tournaments having wanted this matchup for so long Djokovic has now run into to Alcaraz three times he is a defining feature of this chapter of Djokovic's career he's giving him a reason to to get up in the morning to to go the extra mile I can imagine him feeling you know like Nadal did when Federer retired just a bit kind of oh all right, <laughs> I've got to beat Casper Rude, have I? Um, yeah, I don't know. I could see that being a slightly weird scenario. I'd still back him to come through it because it's Novak Djokovic. But I could see him losing a bit of an edge in that kind of scenario. I think Djokovic right at this moment is defined by Alcaraz more so than the reverse is true. Because Alcaraz has got his, his little Yannick Sinner thing 
going on he's got his you know the little cohort of you know the runa alcaraz thing it's it's huge for alcaraz the Djokovic thing but he's also got an eye on the future and what the next 10 15 years are going to look like this is it for Djokovic. this is probably how long he can hold off alcaraz is the final chapter of his career at the top mm. and it's utterly compelling utterly I mean how other than completely shot how must Djokovic feel this morning having at a certain breakdown sat there with us all wondering if he would even complete the match um, to to in the end forcing a situation where it was Alcaraz's body that failed because it did not failed to the extent that it did in Paris but failed enough that Djokovic had the physical edge in the final stages of that match. He must feel like a king, a very old, creaky king. <laughs> well, uh, uh, the, the word you used earlier of being, feeling proud, I think, is is apt because and and there was there wasn't just one comeback in this match. There were several because there were several moments where both players looked done, i.e., either physically or how can you withstand the disappointment of that and come back and be competitive mm. because I, I I was astonished by uh, Alcaraz's comeback in that third set for instance when he looked done and and the break back and then Djokovic withstanding the disappointment of that and still finding a way to, to win those final points but you're right in the, in the end he just about broke Alcaraz down to take that edge off him in the, in the tie break to get over the line one of them had to get over the line and that and that's what eventually won it and you you know Andy Roddick was making the point on tennis channel you've also got to go back into the previous days of the tournament and look how much effort and energy uh, Alcaraz had to expend in order to, to to get to this point but he was actually playing well in the final I mean it was this was not the Alcaraz of the rest of the tournament and in fact the the, the tournament before where he just hasn't been very good suddenly he he, he found it when he needed it and and he, he actually said, Roddick, he's encouraged about the way Alcaraz didn't cramp until three hours and 30 minutes following all these other matches, whereas he'd been cramping at two hours and 20 minutes in Paris and in other matches he's played. So he actually sees it as, as strides taken. Um, and whilst he, a 36-year-old outlasted a 20-year-old, he just... And this is where I come down is Alcaraz is learning on the job gathering experience, gathering uh, know-how in these horrible, tight, difficult moments. And, and he's, he, I think he's loving the window of, of it being Djokovic almost as much as Djokovic is loving it. I think that they are aware of what they've got here and that it, it ain't going to last very long. And in the end, I see it making Alcaraz better and more dominant. Mm. Can we talk about the Alcaraz sobbing? Have we ever seen Alcaraz cry before? No. No. I've, it was really jarring, actually. Mm. He's always happy. And even through his sobs, he, he managed to convert his sob into a beaming smile at one point, didn't he? It was kind of, I know it's going to be all right in the end, but right in this moment, I feel, I feel all the feelings. And it was... Oh, there were so many emotions. Are we... Are we concerned about the persistent cramping of Carlos Alcaraz? I mean, some people are just more prone to cramp 
than others. He's got that. He's got crazy muscle mass on his legs, hasn't he? Holger Rune has the same, and he's prone to cramping. Some some people are just more naturally predisposed to it. That's not to say there's nothing you can do. Andy Murray went through that weird phase 12 months ago, didn't he, where he started cramping and was really disconcerted by it and made a point of just leaving no stone unturned to, to get on top of it as soon as he could. And and he did, in fact. So maybe Carlos Alcaraz would be putting in a, a call to, to Andy Murray. But does it does it concern us at all? A bit. And I think I think generally the sheer volume of, of tennis that Alcaraz had to play this week wouldn't be your absolutely ideal preparation going into a US Open, even as a 20-year-old. I don't think losing sets to Max Purcell is ever... No, I mean... Ever it, ideal. I mean, there was a there was a scenario where he had he had um, a chance to win that match in two sets last night, and it would have been his, his first straight sets win <laughs> yeah. of the week. Of, of course, it sort of escalated and ended up being the most gruelling of them all. Um, but I suppose the Alcaraz we saw this week, and maybe a bit more last week as well, until the final, as, as David says, reminded me of Alcaraz from last year, where he was... He was electric at times and the shot making was there, but it, was, it wasn't consistent and there was a lot of errors and he was losing unnecessary sets. But then, you know, he won last year's US Open without much, without mm. really doing anything in, in Canada or Cincinnati, playing a lot of gruelling matches in the US Open and holding up. We saw him hold up in that Wimbledon final, which was a very long match as well, again, and stressful against Novak Djokovic. I think yesterday was really extreme I mean I, mm. I, I know you can you can get those sticky hot horrible conditions in New York as well generally you know the fact kind of as we saw yesterday the fact that the shade came across the court eventually and I think that helped Djokovic I, I don't think of US Open finals as being sort of absolutely devastating heat played in the sort of the sort of back end of the day the, the shade comes across it, it tends to be he's likely right. to be night session a lot he's going to play the night he? session a lot mm. like I'm not too worried but I but I it is a factor it is something that he needs to manage in his career because and, and it the, has cost him in a, in a few matches now and the opponents will be aware of can I just drag this out can I just be but, John Millman but, against Roger Federer yeah Federer. but that's the thing right now the only guy who I see being able to mm, take Alcaraz to that place is is Novak Djokovic and at the moment they can only meet in the final yeah mm, interesting Did, are we at all worried about the expenditure of yesterday emotional physical s- stressful <laughs> not the right word um, what it takes out of either of them for the US Open I know it's a week away and you can recover your body in a week but they're, they're definitely both going to have to change their planned preparation for the US Open they're definitely not going to do the practices over the next few days that they m- might have been intending to do for sure. And these are the most highly tuned athletes in the world. You know, everything is planned down to the 1%. So a, a disruption like that, it isn't nothing, I don't think. And I feel like it's bigger for Alcaraz because Djokovic has been doing more days off and um, being less rigid, I think, with the volume that he practices, sort of a, a, listening more to his body, which is what you have to do as you, you age, right? Whereas... 
I don't think that comes very naturally to Alcaraz as a 20-year-old beast to go, oh, my body hurts a bit today. I think I'll think I have a day off from the practice court. I don't know. What, what do you think? Is it... Am I being silly because it's all no. a week away? No, you're not. But I, I would say that when you were talking earlier about what what a balloon popping moment it would meet, it would be if they didn't meet in the final now. I mean, that really is the case. This feels like Nadal and Federer avoiding each other all those years at the U.S. Open. You just we know that. I was going to say, do you, do you think New York are really anxious that they'll well, end up being yeah, the one they, slam that doesn't get they Alcaraz want this. Jokovic they want this. This again. this is. And the window is so small because Djokovic is is a, is a freak, but he is 36. He, he can't do this f- for five years. He, he can maybe do it for two. I don't know. Maybe three. Who knows? But I just feel like if they've woken up this morning all right, I think they'll be okay. Uh, but I do feel like they pushed each other to levels and extremes that are not normal last night and and if anything was going to break it could have been in that match if one of their hamstrings was going to pop or something was going to go the the thing the reason i think they'll be okay is Djokovic is a past master at managing these situations if he wakes up okay today he will just manage his body for the next three weeks to get to that final Alcraz he doesn't need to do as much, but there is a premium on the experience of people like Ferrero now to hold him back, to tell him to stand down, to recover, because he can. He can afford. I don't. I look. I don't know the the exact requirements physiologically in a situation like this and sports science wise. That I'm sure there are cooling down things that they should do to reduce lactic acid and all these sort of things, but. I would have thought, I mean, Alcaraz can afford to take however many days off he needs in order to recover. There are, there are enough there. And then because it's a match every other day, you get that time to pace yourselves. I think what's happening in, to, to Alcaraz in the last three months, including the French Open, is he is fast-tracking his development in Grand Slams and in big matches because he's, he's being forced to. He's having to play Novak Djokovic at the sharp end in the most stressful situations imaginable and it is only it's like it's like when players say I have to go and practice at tournaments against top players because that's how I improve Alcaraz is doing it on the job and and I just feel like he's he's probably now going to go through the US Open draw against the people he should beat easily he'll beat them easily I think that they both will they'll have moments I'm sure where players play well against them I bet you they cruise the first week yeah, I think so too. And there's a couple of things about... Uh, this is kind of taking the, the final aside, but on the fact that Alcaraz didn't really play well all week, I don't think Cincinnati suits him very well. There's a very. It seems to me... I've only been to the event once and I mostly remember the roller coasters. Um, <laughs> but it seems to me there's very high bouncing, whether that's the balls or the... Uh, surface or a, a, an interaction thereof. The, the, the drop shot certainly. It's a waste of he time. put the drop shot away. <laughs> yeah, he put the drop shot away mostly, didn't he? And that's a, a huge weapon of his. During a lot of those grueling rallies, when Alcaraz was clearly on the brink of cramp with his with his legs, and you know his his, his first serve just deserted him for most of the third set, didn't he? Because I don't think he had the the necessary explosivity in his 
in his legs to to get up on it. He was right on the edge, and yet still he wasn't serving volleying at all. I mean, he was occasionally at the net, but it had to be a darn brilliant brilliant volley to win the point. And look, he's capable of darn brilliant volleys. He he did it on occasion, but a lot of his powers there were blunted by the conditions in Cincinnati. And I do think it's different. It's quicker um, in New York. It's more Washington. Like, I'm sure Alcaraz would have thrived in Washington. Sorry, Dan Evans and Solly Hull, <laughs> had he played there. Um, and that's really not to take anything away from Djokovic. I'm not, I'm not really talking about that match there. I'm talking about the week as a whole and the fact that he he never really reached his peak until that final and was dropping sets against players that you would never usually expect him to drop sets to. Um, Who's the favourite for the US Open, chaps? You knew this was coming. Don't look so indignant about the question. I mean, this is going to sound like a total cop-out, but I feel like it is possible that the answer is sort of equal I mean how <coughs> genuinely how can you call one over the I other right now I did just choke on my coffee unrelated <laughs> just you were just so disgraced with my answer <laughs> you just choked on your coffee I mean I genuinely think you can build an equal case for both you absolutely can I'm asking if which case if you had I to endorse be, one right now I would be picking Alcaraz David same I would also say Alcraz because I feel like he's got everything he needs from the past two weeks I think it's been a lot harder than he would have expected certainly harder than I would have expected I didn't see all those three set matches come in but I just don't think normal rules apply to this guy I don't there are so many moments where normally I would think oh that's going to get in his head now not to have won from a set and a break up that's standard practice isn't it but I just don't think it applies to this guy. I think he takes it as experience so quickly uh, in a positive way and turns it around. The way he did when he cramped at the French Open, I would never have believed that somebody could come back after f- cramping at the French Open and just put it behind them like that. Um, and, and I think that that body, is a, if he can handle the cramping, I do think, Catherine, you're asking is it an issue, I do think it's a concern for him and his fans and his support team in the short term. I think I think in two years' time we'll wonder. We'll, we'll remember when Alcraz used to cramp. I don't. I don't. But at the moment, it is still a concern because it may be that Djokovic, Djokovic might find his best chances dragging him into five hours and then and then inducing cramp to take the edge off. That may be the case, but I I don't see it like that. I think that at the U.S. Open. He's already learning how to peak for Grand Slams at 20. I find that staggering. Um, maybe, maybe that's the most Nadal-like thing about him, that he's learned how to do it that early. And I think he will be better at the US Open even than he was in this final. Um, and I think he'll win the US Open. Yeah. Well, I put I mean, more stock David on... David thinks he's winning the next... 12, 12 slams. That's true. So yeah, he really needs to if win you would, the US If Open. you had backed out on that at the next slam, David, we'd be taking you to task. <laughs> Quite right. <laughs> I think I just put more stock on on what happened at Wimbledon. You know, he beat Djokovic over five on grass. Yeah. Like, 
that was unbelievable what he did that day we've seen him be able to to do that so you know yesterday was felt like you know felt like Djokovic getting a bit of revenge getting a you know a bit of an edge that he needed absolutely but it doesn't doesn't take away from what Alcaraz did at Wimbledon I'd said it again didn't I at Wimbledon <laughs> um, but um, it's in your muscle memory now it, it is <laughs> really need to work on that did either of you have a favourite second or moment of the match like favourite shot because there were so many I, I was just thinking back to the the Djokovic backhand pass at the five all game in the third set oh, yeah. when when Alcaraz hit the perfect forehand volley onto the line like played the perfect point the sort of point mm. that Federer might have played against him and he can conjure that backhand pass I don't know like both players playing their best stuff in that game same time Colin Fleming on commentary said he, he thinks it might be the best game he's ever seen mm. I mean Alcaraz saved saved a match point with a 98 mile an hour forehand that was pretty cool <laughs> he saved another match point running down a I know about Djokovic sort of drop volley and, oh, and yeah. sort of bunted it up the line in a, in a, a flat, in a gap a that flat, didn't really um, exist. Punts down the line, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the Djokovic sort of left because he thought, well, that's not that's <laughs> yeah, it's that's not, not possible. possible. Yeah, I've, pl- I've been playing this sport for twenty years. Nobody's made that pass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's it. It, it, it. It's the way that they they're both able to push each other to limits that no one else at the moment can and they and they so often each respond to that with just sheer brilliance that no one else can find either they just Mm. extract it's such a push and pull they they push each other to the limit and then the guy responds with something even better it's it's absolutely tantalizing and honestly there are you know there are 128 men in that us open draw there is one match I need to see. I want to see. You know, there That's will rude against Hubert Hurkacz. <laughs> <laughs> the Matherin Derby. There'll be good stuff along the way, but if we don't get Elkaz Djokovic, I will. I will feel a bit cheated. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I think. I think. It kind of reminds me th- now that of is like sort of when an objective I, way for tennis fans to feel now. Right? If mm. you don't, if you don't, if you're not all about. Djokovic Alcaraz in the men's then what are you doing <laughs> it's when I go back and read about how you know in in the sort of days before pro tennis people used to turn pro and just just go on tour together and play like 50 50 matches against each other almost feels like Alcaraz and Djokovic could could just do that now like Kasparud like and Nadal did in South America in December you've brought Ru- Kasparud again ruin, <laughs> ruining the first half of Kasparud's <laughs> season yeah but the, like the interest is just there now obviously you know I don't want them to do that I want them to be playing in in the biggest and best tournaments that's part of what makes their matches so good of course it is but they're just they're just on a different plane at the moment and the fact that they're at such different stages of their career is making the rivalry so mm. fascinating you know like I would love to have 10 or 15 years of Alcaraz Djokovic but, but it you would wouldn't feel get different that. right now exactly you wouldn't get the the utter sweet spot that that we're in now start of career end of career trying to reach that level trying to fend him off you know it's just absolutely tantalizing right now that is I don't know if this is translating through the screen but he's almost vibrating <laughs> David, but that's an wearing. Um, I might point out, and this will be um, 
this uh, vi- this visual content will be available on our socials. But Matt is in head to toe Wilson. <laughs> yep. <laughs> of oh, course, it's so good. It's, that's what that's what you do, isn't he it? He looks like you know how <laughs> tennis players, and I'm sure other athletes, on the brink of a big tournament, they're invited to their sponsors' like flagship store. And they're informed. Everything, everything in here is already in your size. Just pick whatever you want. There's a car waiting uh, to carry only merchandise. You just pick out whatever you want, Matthew. Uh, and that's. Um, it looks like that's um, what Matt's done. I'm on my way, Wilson. <laughs> Let me know where your event is. You don't need any more <laughs> stuff. You've got a whole wardrobe. Um, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Right. Well, do you know what? If, if Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz need advice on how to cope with the most grueling sporting conditions imaginable i reckon they should call coco goff because she was the only person yesterday whose performance didn't seem to be affected by the conditions her opponents definitely was carolina mukova and i i think lots else affected her well she told us lots else (laughs) affected her performance um yesterday in the final but I realized after watching the men's final that actually Coco Goff and Carolina Mukova had played in worse conditions they'd played in the absolute peak heat and burning sun of the day and it just wasn't really mentioned in relation to Coco Goff um, she and I know she tells that tells us that about herself. She says the hotter the better, but until you've really seen her just 
power through like it's a, a nice 21 degree spring day in in Paris or something it's it's kind of hard to process but wow she how has Coco Goff transformed herself since losing in the first round of Wimbledon and I don't mean that in terms of her being a different player or necessarily um, doing loads of things differently I but something has shifted and I think of her differently now I think of her going into this US Open differently than I ever have before yeah I I think so I I think that um, what she has achieved is astonishing really in the space of a two three month turnaround and if you consider that it's it's been a long time of stagnation really from I know she reached the French Open so it's probably since then but there's certainly not been any strides taken since that French Open final in a positive sense that I've been able to detect until that Washington win in fact I feel like she's gone backwards I I, I found her interview on court so revealing and and she let us in and we've seen the tears after hurtful losses in the past but she's such a positive talker outwardly that she that's her way of dealing with it I think is to move forwards but in that interview on the court she said you know I've been on my own so many times crying in the middle of the night because I don't know what to do I'm trying to find the answers and and now she's found the answers and to win Washington biggest tournament of her career today to beat Iga Svantec I mean to go toe to toe with Iga who okay I'm sure her fans would say well Iga wasn't at her best probably wasn't but it was still a pretty good Iga Svantec I thought and Goff did not break down she used she did everything that Mary Carrillo says a top player needs to do she found a way to hide that weakness of the forehand and and defend it she had the serve she had her own weapon and she just brought it to bear and and her weapons are multiple because she's obviously got the backhand list worthy backhand she's got the the movement that is the best in the game and she's also got that competitive spirit she she has as good an attitude on the court as you can have i think and and i just think it was it was massive i I would just like to say one small thing about brad gilbert as well who i i'm wary of giving coaches too much credit because coco goff is the player that deserves the credit for the win but brad gilbert I I was looking this up, I remembered it, and I looked it up to to make sure. He came on board with Andre Agassi in March of 1994, and six months later, Agassi won the US Open. He came on board with Andy Roddick in June of 2003, and three months later, Andy Roddick won the US Open. I don't know whether Coco Goff's going to win the US (laughs) Open, but he's had a similarly, or she's had similarly transformative results as they both had. That can't be coincidence. He has an ability to communicate ideas and and get people playing their best stuff. I don't think he's turned her game around and given her a new forehand, but he's got the be- he's helped her to get the best out of herself. Yeah, there's enough evidence and data points there that you've just cited, David, that this is not an accident. And I feel the same uh, trepidation that you do about giving too much credit to coaches, particularly where it's female player male coach um but he deserves some credit clearly he is a huge factor here to the extent that my brother has bought his book 
winning ugly. Um, yeah, I don't think I don't think two months ago, my brother would have seen a future in which he was reading Brad Gilbert's book of the mid nineties. But here he is reading <laughs> and learning. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I think you know players always deserve credit for hiring the right coach. You know, it's ultimately them that that have to make that decision as well. And I think that's that's a really interesting word and point about stagnation because that that's that's been the sort of paradox of Coco Goff's career like she's still so young and yet she's been around so long and so good for so long that this in a way has kind of felt like a long time coming and yet it isn't really she's still at the very developmental stage in her career and she's and she's sort of way ahead of the curve in that respect but once you once you do get defined as a certain player and once you once you are stagnating, it's very, very difficult to shift it and change your storyline, change your narrative, get out of it. I mean, how many players do we talk about who just sort of week in, week out do the same sort of thing? It might be a great thing. It might be, you know, constantly reaching quarterfinals or semifinals. They're really good, but they've hit a ceiling. And Coco Goff had, had been, you know, a consistent top 10 player, but just had these, had these sort of obstacles, you know, and mainly the forehand and not being able to overcome them. It felt like that had become the Coco Goff narrative. How is she going to get out of this? And, you know, I think long term in her career, I thought maybe she would get out of it, but not in this short space of a time. And I completely agree. It's not like, it's not like the forehand is totally fixed, but she's covering it up and therefore showing off all the other aspects of, of her game, you know. And actually now against Iga Sviontek, if she can protect that forehand, it suddenly doesn't feel like such a bad matchup because she's able to move with Sviontek mm. in a way that kind of no one else is. She can defend and put balls back and she's got the grit and the resilience that you need to be able to push the world number one. And, and she's got a serve, which is a big weapon as well. And I don't think we can overstate what a big deal that was to beat Sviontek and get over that that mental barrier. I mean, she said afterwards, didn't she, that she didn't want Gelman Fisi's record against Novak Djokovic. You know, she was she was wary that that was becoming becoming a thing. Not even winning a set, and suddenly she goes and, and wins the match. That that in itself, even if she hadn't gone on to win the title, that in itself was just a massive massive breakthrough. It's changed my outlook on her because now there's now there's no draw yeah. that I look at and think, oh well, Coco Goff can't get through that. You know, previously, if she was in Iga Svantec's section, unfortunately, it's over for Coco mm-hmm. Goff. But now, kind of feels like anything is is kind of possible for her. It feels like Brad Gilbert has helped her to rediscover the swagger that she had as a junior. I remember Mary Carrillo telling us that as a junior, Coco Goff was just so much physically superior to everybody because she developed very early physically didn't she and in juniors you, you you what you tend to see is somebody with the with the skill but still developing physically but she was such a superior athlete as a junior that 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 was enough the weaknesses weren't exposed she was able to disguise them um and then sort of gradually over the course of her senior senior career again talking talking about her like she's been out there forever but you know it it's 
tough out there. <laughs> There's so many good players and the weaknesses get exposed, but uh, they have the they have the mics in the coaching boxes, don't you? So you can hear the sort of constant dialogue from the coaches and Brad Gilbert is particularly in tight moments I noticed against Iga Swiatek. He kept on reminding her that she was the better athlete even against Iga Swiatek who's an incredible athlete. Make this physical. You are you're the one athletically here. Make it about that. Yes, you're not a perfect tennis player. So he wasn't shouting that. This is I'm reading between the lines here. You might have an issue with your forehand. Who cares? You've got other attributes that are so much better than everyone else. They can they can cover it up. Nobody's perfect. Iga Swiatek has a has a slightly ropey second serve. It's just so hard to expose because everything else is so good. That can be you. Um, and I thought that was amazing to see. And it's so interesting when she when she won, suddenly all the stats about, you know, teenagers winning titles get trotted out. And I find that really jarring because I just don't think of youth as a feature of Coco Goff anymore. Obviously, I did when she first burst on the scene all those many years ago in 2019 as a 15 year old but usually when you hear stats about I think one of them was the first teenager to win multiple titles in a year since Bianca Andreescu. That's it Andreescu in 2019 was at a completely different prospect to Goff exactly. in 2023. Exactly usually teenagers yeah. doing things what they're doing is bursting out of the blocks and taking everyone by surprise and using that sheen of youth and newness and the unknown as an opponent and using that as a weapon Coco Goff doesn't have any of those attributes but she's got experience (laughs) Um, and she's got resilience because she's experienced highs and lows and yet she's 19 which is so bizarre but incredible absolutely incredible what did we think about um, lovely Carolina Mukova's opening words in her speech being about how sore she felt that morning i woke up and said ouch yeah which unfortunately i feel like carolina mukova does a lot yeah it was a sort of line where if it had come from somebody that had a reputation for being an eggy loser i would wince at it and go oh that's a bit uncool you're that sort of saying oh you only won because i wasn't physically 100 percent." but because it's carolina mukova you you maybe give her a bit of a free pass, especially as she clearly was feeling it physically yesterday. Yeah, and she, I mean, she was clutching her ab, wasn't she, against Sabalenka? Mm. I, I was quite worried about that. And then the next day, she comes out with a lot of strapping on her leg. It was it was just the Carolina Mukova story, really. Um, but again, a demonstration that when. Uh, if she was fit this week, you know, she was fit enough to be able to to play and win matches. She's she's up there with the best of them with her game. You know, we saw that again. The way she came back against Sabalenka, having lost that really up and down first set where they sort of both had chances to win it. When Sabalenka came through that, Mukova just ignited in sets two and three and just, just played at a level that kind of not even Sabalenka could really live with, which I was pretty shocked by I suppose um, yeah maybe wasn't the greatest thing to say first first line of the of the speech but I think it was just genuine yeah you know 
Yeah. Um, but great, great to have Mukova, you know, at, at the sharp end of a big tournament again. She she makes good matches as well because of because of that different style that she's got. Okay, some big picture questions for you both to end this segment on. Um, I'll start with Sabalenka losing in a semi-final again to to Karolina Mukova. Does the fact that the the semi-final hurdle is now extending beyond Grand Slams into 1,000 events, does this cement our feeling that Sabalenka, you know, that that maybe one victory over Magdalenette in Australia might have been the exception and the Grand Slam semi-final problem does still linger? I do think there's a problem there. Yeah, I do. Uh, And look, she's won the Australian Open, so you kind of feel like she should be able to live off the memories of that and be able to get over this but the the evidence doesn't really suggest that you know she's been in these matches where I kind of feel like she should be winning uh, Mukova is one of my favorite players to watch because I don't know what I'm going to get from game to game but she was inhibited and and the commentators in that Sabalenka match were saying I really don't understand why she's playing if she's if she if her abs hurt him because you know that is not an area of your body you want to be messing around with as a tennis player um and yeah I mean tournaments in which Elena Rybakina and Iga Sviantek fall early should by the narrative we've all developed over the last year, mean that Arena Sabalenka picks up the pieces. Oh, okay, and goes and wins. oh no! <laughs> but I mean, you know, I do feel like this was a big opportunity that she should have taken. She should be like Alcaraz cramps at, at the, the French Open and gets revenge at Wimbledon. Djokovic stomachs that disappointment and goes and wins Cincinnati. Sabalenka's lost to 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 Mukova for the French from leading and then goes and does it again I just think I think that that's a problem really and um, and, and look it's not one she can't reverse but she's got work to do in my eyes yeah she has she has changed in my mind as a player this year Sabalenka absolutely you know she's won that slam her consistency across the season is something that I don't think she's really shown before you know she beat Jabir here having lost to her at Wimbledon you know, there, was, there was some sign of uh, you know, a little bit of revenge there, but this is a problem. Absolutely, mm. you know, it, it goes back her whole career. You know, a couple of years ago, that one against Leda Fernandez at the U.S. Open last year against Iga Swiatek at the U.S. Open. A, a couple of big ones this summer. It is a problem, and she hasn't got over that. She got over it once, as you said, against Magdalena in Australia, but she hasn't she hasn't completely sort of cured herself of that I think it's it's absolutely something to still be wary of when we're thinking about Sabalenka as as a contender at, at the biggest tournaments which she is but she, she's not a banker by any means because of this because of this problem okay next question how big's the women's mix at the US Open and is Coco Goff in it is Carolina Mukova in it that was a lot of questions. A good in question, one question, though. I, wasn't I it? think it's, I think it's quite big, um, mm. and and I definitely think Coco Goff's in it, hundred percent in it. Uh, I think that Carolina Mukova, fully fit, is in it, and that is a big if, isn't it? I, the, by the way, what she said on the court, I, I kind of thought it was might have even been three pronged. She might have been also talking about 
the last, and this complement to Coca Golf, the last player you want to be playing in these conditions, in this heat, and if you're feeling anything, is her. Ouch. Because she's going to make you, <laughs> make you feel the pain. Um, and then the conditions generally. But, but I think that her, I think she might start beating Sabalenka quite handily in the future because she's, unless Sabalenka pulls it back, because Sabalenka's determination to dominate, at some point, Mukova gets into this mindset where she's just able to completely make her malfunction. And, and I think, so fully fit, I, I would put Mukova in the mix as well. David's more gung ho with his mix than we we are, aren't we? You're more you're more trigger happy with your mix, is, which is which is fun. Is is Marketa von Drosheva in the mix? Oh Christ! <laughs> no, not for me. Oh God! Uh, really? Mukova is. I would be surprised if Mukova won the U.S. Open. So she's not in my mix she's with Yannick Sinner for me maybe in a different kind of way but wouldn't be surprised to see them in the final would be surprised to see them win it which I know is sort of counterintuitive because if we find if we end up you know on the eve of the final doing a final preview podcast of a final with Mukova in it I'm not going to say well she's got zero chance am I I'm going to say she's got a chance regardless of who she's playing because she's blooming good but so that's how I feel. And we have had final mixes in the past, haven't we? David famously had a Cameron Norrie final mix at a, at a I feel like an Australian at, at Open. This, year's, at, at this Australian year's Australian Open. Open. Um, Years so a long time in tennis. That's, <laughs> that's how I feel about Mukova. Coco Goff's in, in the mix for me. Yeah, for me too. I mean, I, I could probably extend it to about seven or eight names. I think I think Sviontek, Rabatkina, Sabalenka, Goff. R- Rabatkina is not right. No, physically. No, in a few different ways. I, f- I feel. Yeah, I, th- I think the shoulder is an issue. I think the general load of matches that mm. she's had, and I think you know possibly still some effects of whatever she had back in the in the summer. She doesn't seem quite right. I agree, but not enough for me to take her out of the mix personally. I think. I think you've then got tricky names like Jessica Bagula in Jabur. has been in, in incredible form but has a quarterfinal problem. Ons Jabur like has reached three Grand Slam finals but actually getting over and winning mm. one is a problem. Marketa Vondrosheva, oh. Karolina Mukova. Like there's the eternal covet of a problem. <laughs> no, she's not in the mix. No, but you know, just who knows. Yeah. Yeah, like those are, those are my eight names. Okay, David, any further submissions? See, see, I, I I've gone early and said the mix is pretty big, and then I've just completely eliminated Marketa Androsova, who won the most recent. <laughs> grand, and, now, and now Matt's reading off names, and I'm I'm thinking, yeah, you're right, she's not in it. And, <laughs> and so I don't know. I haven't been forensic enough about it. Um, it just, and I, I suppose maybe there is a distinction to be made between a final mix and a tournament winning mix in in how I end up looking at it there are certain players that I wouldn't be surprised reach the final but I still think they'd end up losing it um, I, I'm very confident about the four Rebecca definitely is at the lower end of that I think I'd probably put her behind Goff now in terms of, of likelihood same. to win the thing but at the same time I, I often think well if somebody's that good and they and they 
for whatever reason rock up and feel okay, well, they could end up still winning it all. Um, but but yeah, I'd I'd probably put Goff at sort of whew, joint second favorite right now for the title. Yeah, I think I feel similarly, David. Form-wise, with Rabatkina, it's just the Grand Slam winning pedigree of Rabatkina. Form-wise, I'm pretty worried about her. Really, she seems a way off, and that's it's really disappointing because I'm I'm really into the big three. Could soon be a big four, or big five, or big six, or you know whatever. I'm into it, whatever it is. Um, I'm into a cluster rivalry. Mm. Um, okay well look we've got a whole week of US Open preview to come so we shan't delve into mixed chat any further <laughs> I've also got some on the boat updates having just spent a weekend with my dad and quiz Captain Whitaker uh, on a few people and their boat status so that's a little tease of what's to come uh, over US Open preview week what do we have coming up we're recording a podcast on thursday david's arrival day in new york that's draw day guys the noise is about the us open draw i'm not liking them (laughs) who's making noises is it you well no the reports are that it's that it's just going to be plonked online not streamed no no event and i think that happened last year i can't quite remember because we were traveling and I, I remember just seeing it online, but I think that's what happened. And that is a disgrace. Look, USTA, it's not too late to change your mind. If you don't want to have to face the wrath of Matt Roberts, or should I say continued wrath of Matt Roberts. Um, what are they doing? <laughs> Why would you not make something of your draw? Right. I mean, there's two elements. There's the transparency and, you know, people will say oh it's rigged or whatever look i don't think the us open draw is rigged that's not the reason they but, don't do draws but Come on. that is something that will be thrown at them if they don't do it publicly but the the real thing is as david says make something of it it's an event in itself it sets up the next two weeks it's we've just we've just listed off about eight different players that we think might win the women's us open i want to know what their path is like i want to know when they might meet i want to i want that well, hype no, you want to hear the sharp intakes of breath and the ooh yeah. la and the random rugby it's players being brought on stage. <laughs> yeah. It's not too late to change your mind and hastily arrange some sort of ceremony, even if it's just Matt <laughs> in the audience. It'll be worth it, guys, I promise. Uh, so that's coming up on Thursday. It's going to be a the, great show, though. Oh, it's going to be a great show. Do tune in. That's why I hyped up the On The Boat chat. We yeah. might need... <laughs> might need some supplement um friday is media day we will all be there firing questions at your favorite tennis players and we'll be recording a show after that for friends we have already recorded our us open relived show the kim Kleister's story is up now for friends of the tennis podcast if you want to listen to that and though we say so ourselves it is well worth a listen kim herself is so generous with her time and played such a huge part in telling her own story that is up now for friends if you'd like to become a friend support the show get access to all of our bonus content um, and help us do what we do year round you can even grab yourself a shout out or an intro the link to do that is in our show notes we will also 
be doing some live YouTube shows, picking up where we left off from Wimbledon. Watch this space for exact news of that. We did have a plan. The plan has been somewhat um, slightly modified by uh, the the soon-to-be-latest instalment of the Matt and Catherine Go on a Road Trip to Concerts in the United States series. Um, which Bruce Springsteen's health, health pending. Health permitting is going to have its latest instalment on Saturday. Uh, but don't worry, folks. Uh, we, we will still stick to our plans for live shows just with a slightly uh, adjusted schedule and watch this space for news thereof. Do follow our Instagram, our Twitter, or X. No one's calling it X, are they? No, I'm all right, still calling it Twitter. Threads, pending if that takes off, who knows? Uh, we've got an account, haven't, haven't done any posts, but it, it's, you know, again, watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> we have a mascot for this episode. That mascot is Quincy. And Quincy is owned by Kate Darling. Kate, what an amazing name you have. Quincy is a Shih Tzu Cavalier King Charles Spaniel mix, uh, which I believe in some quarters is known as a Cavasu. Um, and Quincy has a wee bit of a Billie Jean flavour about him, wouldn't you say, Matt? Mm, definitely. I mean, Billie Jean is also half similar, Cavalier King Charles colouring. Spaniel. Yeah, and I'd say probably similar sizing in fact uh, Billie Jean is sometimes mistaken for a, a Shih Tzu cross because she is so tiny um, Kate says Quincy's very old um, he doesn't look it he looks he looks in his prime Kate so thank you very much for making Quincy a mascot and for being a friend of the tennis podcast we have our mascots David's got Maisie I've got Xenia and Matt has Darwin uh, Billy Jean is sponsored by Billy Jean King and Alana Kloss. We have our top folks and executive producers, Jamie, Hannah and Drew. And Matt, we have special Heathrow Airport shout-outs. I mean, I must say, I feel like David deserves a shout-out for not bringing up his uh, Coco Goff to win the title prediction in, ah. this, in this episode. That was... That was incredible restraint, David. I, I, I'm do you know what he did? Do you know those um, impressed those lurkers at casinos that yes. watch when people are on <laughs> slot machines and have put a load of money in and failed to win, and then they swoop in and clean up the jackpot. That's David Law this week. And I was, I was the, I was the mug last week that put all the cash in the in the machine. Not only am I not taking out. credit, I'm actually getting hammered for it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, uh, I, I'd actually. There's a skill to lurking, David. There's a skill to it. <laughs> You'd forgotten about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Who are our actual shout-outs for? David hasn't paid any money Sorry. for that. Our actual shout-outs are Catherine Willerton. Oh, hello, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Same church, same pew. Same church, same pew. Catherine is from Southport. Says a long-time listener to the pod from Southport in Merseyside which isn't a hotbed of tennis talent so it's great to see Neil Skupski doing so well well and Ken, Ken Skupski actually I would call two two brothers I mean that is a bit of a does that not count as a hotbed <laughs> yeah maybe it does actually I was going to say it's more than Putney's ever produced but Putney of course produced Joe Salisbury although he's moved I think but anyway Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. 
We've also got Nick Orrit, who is in Melbourne. Hello, Nick. Hi, Nick. I've been looking at Melbourne accommodation this week. Always planning a couple of slams ahead. Yeah. I'm anticipating the post-US Open come down and it will be eased by Melbourne planning. Good thinking. Do we know anything about Nick? Uh, Nick was born in Kent, but moved to Australia with his family aged 11. Oh, classic. He discovered the podcast in 2020 while working as a junior doctor in Victoria during the pandemic. Amazing work, Nick. I wonder if Nick still has a remnant of a British accent. Let us know, Nick. I wonder if Nick looks out for te- fellow tennis Nicks whilst, you know, watching tennis and has any liking for Nick Kyrgios, who, by the way, is not playing the US Open uh, and has only played one match all year, I think, hasn't he? Um, do, do, you, do you ever look out for players bearing your name and sort of slightly... I wouldn't bite? if my name... if. My name is the same as Nick Kyrgios's. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> my son does. My, if my son sees anybody with his name in football or tennis, I, like that's the one he's going to support. Mm, that, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nick. And finally, we have Avrilina Madella. Wowzer. Love that. Who is originally from Cyprus. Ooh but currently based in both Belgium and the Netherlands. Wow. Okay. Home of I hope, Avrilina, you enjoyed the, mm. um, the Kim Kleister story. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> of course you did. Um, Avrili- I, I mean, I obviously don't know any Avrilinas or any tennis Avrilinas. You are a, a one-off in our parts, Avrilina, but I am going to say Avril Lavigne because it sounds a little bit like that. Yes. And she had some bangers. <laughs> I mean, she's still going. She might still be producing bangers that I'm not aware of. But back in the day, she, Avril Lavigne really did have some bangers. Um, so thank you, Avrilina. Um, and thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our friends of the show that are making it possible for us in an hour and 19 minutes time. Um, provided everything is on time uh, for Matt and I to jet off to New York for David to follow us on Thursday and for us to start producing US Open 2023 podcasts if it is not clear folks we are pumped so we'll speak to you from New York on Thursday Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.